welcome. We gather here in God's presence to come and to worship. And it's good to be reminded that God is the one who has called us, that in God's grace, he interrupts our normal schedules and days to call us to come into his presence. And as we do so, some of us come uh, anxious to be here, ready to kind of come and worship. And I'm sure some of us feel uh, distracted and scattered, worried about all sorts of things. And so it, in all those places, God calls us to come and, and he meets us wherever we are. And so it's good to be here. It's good if you're in person or online watching. And I remind us that a couple of things that are going on in the life of the church. Uh, one is that there is a Wednesday night class that's a hybrid class, both in person at the community center and online through Zoom. And uh, Abnijah Tianu and Taylor Worley are teaching that on global theology, kind of a reminder of God's church and vision is not just one place, but all of the world. And so if you're interested in that, it's at 7.30 on Wednesdays. Information's in the weekly email, or you can contact the church office uh, to get more details. Uh, also, uh, we're going to be sharing communion in the service. So if, you didn't, if you're planning on taking communion and didn't pick up one of these little prepackaged things on the way in, uh, please raise your hand or make your way back out and grab one. Um, but uh, So we'll use these later in the service. Well, God calls us to come and to worship. And as we get ready to come, let's take a moment of quiet to prepare ourselves to come before God. stand together for our call to worship, which comes from Psalm 106. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? Both we and our people have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. Our people, our people when, when they, they were, were in Egypt, Egypt did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled at the Red Sea. the Lord save them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters, waters covered, covered their, their adversaries. Not, not one, one of them, them was left. Then they, they believed his words. They, they sang, sang his praise. praise. Well, as we come to our time of prayer, I invite you to uh, take a brief moment of pause, a time to acknowledge with God how you come tonight, 
maybe your condition, your feelings before him. Let's take a moment of pause. Our Father in heaven, you are as unfailing and unwaveringly good today as you have always been. Holy is your name. However unholy the world appears, however misused and abused your name seems. Your kingdom come in every heart, every nation, every corner of this aching world. Your will be done, however hard we strive to see our own imperfect will unfold. On earth as it is in heaven, may we see glimmers of your goodness even as the news breaks hearts as well as headlines. Give us today our daily bread, the grace we need to make it through each hour. Forgive us our sins for our unwillingness to listen and our quickness to dismiss. As we forgive those who sin against us, those who challenge the limits of our love and the boundaries of our understanding, lead us not into temptation to lose all hope, but deliver us from evil, from fear, violence, prejudice, injustice, deliver us from ourselves. For yours is the kingdom and the uncomfortableness of the now, yet not quite now. Yours is the power, though your executive orders come as loving whispers, not violent shouts. Yours is the glory, not small vainglory, which will fade, but the vast eternal glory of all glories forever and ever, in the name of our mighty and gentle King, we pray. Amen. Well, we turn now to our time of confession. And this is one of those times that always makes us uncomfortable, right? That time to acknowledge with God our sin. And for us, what seems like a time of guilt, a time of shame, a time of perhaps even hiding, it actually is a time of welcome, a time of God, to experience God's kindness and his mercy towards us. And so with that invitation, under his mercy and his kindness, let's come and acknowledge with him our sin and our need. And we'll do this together as a church and then have a time of quiet personal confession. Lord, we gather as your people tired, hungry, and seeking to hear your word and to know your will for our lives. God of mercy, you have told us what is good and what you require of us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Amen. Please take a moment of quiet confession.
Gracious God, we are thankful that you came to us in our weakness, in our greatest need of rescue. While we were still sinners, you descended into the depths of our sin and death to be in our place and to raise us to new life. So we give thanks with joy in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, having confessed our sin, let's stand together and hear the words of assurance that come from Psalm 91. The Lord is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I find refuge under his wings, and his faithfulness is my shield. You may be seated. The New Testament lesson is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The gospel lesson is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent his servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited ones were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. 
And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I mentioned, it's good to worship with you, and I'm thankful for a chance to look at God's Word together. Um, as you guys, as you know, we've been looking at the passages from the book of Isaiah this fall, and we're going to continue doing that today. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 40. And so what I want to do as we enter as induction is to take a moment just to talk about some kind of historical or literary context so we kind of understand where we're arriving at our passage and then take a moment to kind of introduce uh, how we can enter into it. So, so first, we're going to look at chapter 40, and it's helpful for us to know that the book of Isaiah has two main parts. Two main parts, and, and those parts are divided around two different superpowers of the day. <laughs> the first part is around Assyria and their threat, and the second part is around the threat of Babylon. And chapter 40 is the beginning of the second part. You see, in chapters 1 through 39, the people of God are living under this threat, this constant fear of Assyria. And it's left them over and over again to wonder, what will happen? Will my fears and worries come to a head? Is there any way to avoid this kind of looming shadow? Well, the first part of the book and that threat of Assyria draws to an end when God defeats Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. His army is destroyed, but after the fall of Assyria, Babylon realizes its ambitions. It rises up as the new power of the region. And a century after Assyria failed to take Jerusalem, Babylon succeeded. In 586 BC, Jerusalem fell, and many people and the leaders were taken into exile, taken out of the city into Babylon, The city fell, and the temple itself was destroyed. So we're at a passage in chapter 40 that starts that second part. And what's interesting, though, is that this exile, this destruction of the city, is not directly talked about in Isaiah. It's not directly referred to. It happens in between chapter 39 and chapter 40. It's like this abyss of what happens to God's people. The details are not spelled out, the details are not given, but this deep and lasting trauma of defeat and exile looms over our passage in really the whole second half of the book. So in between chapter 39 and chapter 40, something devastating has transpired. It has fallen. And the loss of safety, the loss of home and land, the loss of the temple, it leads to questions such as, now what? What does this mean for who I am and my future? Can God fix this, or does God even want to fix it? And so those are the questions swirling. And it's into that context, historically and literally, that our passage arrives, speaking 
about hope. About hope in the midst of loss and trauma. So before we read, though, I want to think a moment about this idea of hope. The American poet Emily Dickinson, instead wrote 1,800 poems. 1,800 poems, that's a lot of poems. And one of the most well-known of her poems is titled, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Hope is the Thing with Feathers. And it opens this way. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches, perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. The poem continues, this sweetest tune is heard in the storm, in the coldest of land, and the strangest of sea. And this tune keeps so many warm. What does this mean? What is the poet saying to us? What I want us to think here is that she's giving a poem, inviting us to see that hope, hope must come from outside of us. It's like a bird that lands upon a branch. The hope doesn't come from the tree, within the tree, but it must receive hope. That it perches in the soul and sings. Hope can't be something that we just muster up, but something that is given to us. And in our passage, we'll see that Isaiah agrees with this image of hope. Enduring hope, hope that never stops, that continues in the face of a storm, or the cold land, or a harsh sea, or during an exile, or in a pandemic. Such hope must come from outside of us. It comes from outside, but purchase within us. Our passage describes hope not as a bird, but actually a chorus of voices, a chorus of voices, an announcement to hear, a message to receive, and then a call to join, to participate, to lift and include your voice in the hopeful message. So let's look at our passage. This is from Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. It's on your order of worship. You can follow there or just listen as I read. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we come as people who need to hear from you. Lord, we need your spirit to minister to us that by your word that you teach us what is true, but not just so that we'd have information, Lord, but that our, our spirits would be lifted, that we'd be able to share our struggles, our fears, our worries with you, Lord, that we would find hope in the midst of them. Lord, I pray that you would grant us by your spirit this, this insight, this understanding, that we'd be moved to find hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, there is uh, here hope presented as a chorus of voices. And I want to look at three kind of movements in our passage as we go our way through the sermon. First, we'll see an announcement to hear, then a message to receive, a message to, to let in. And then finally, there's a call to join, a call to participate in this choir. So let's start with this announcement to hear, which right away we hear these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is the announcement, and it comes, as I mentioned in the introduction, into the context of sorrow. And maybe we can think for a moment about a difficulty, about a painful experience or event that changes everything. I don't ask that lightly to, to think about such an experience that we might be having now or in the past. But to think about such an experience brings us into the experience of those who would hear Isaiah's words. Between chapter 39 and 40, we don't get the details, but they have had an experience, a painful experience, that changes everything going forward. They've lost their home, they've lost surely loved ones, they've lost the security that they were clinging to. And while Isaiah leaves out the details, we can look at the Old Testament book of Lamentations that tells us about what it was to lose the city of Jerusalem. In five poetic laments, this book describes the experience, and they describe it around the idea of being abandoned, of having no one to comfort you. How lonely lies the city, once so full of people. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have left and betrayed her. Judah has gone into exile and she finds no place to rest. She never feels at home. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for there is no one, no one to comfort me. You see the poems that were part of the people's experience. And it's in the midst of that that we hear God's interruption, his proclamation, comfort. Comfort, comfort my people. Into despairing ears and into despairing hearts comes an announcement from God. Into the abyss, all of a sudden, is a proclamation that things are different. There's more than what you've experienced. First, we hear this phrase, my people and your God. To those who have known their sin and their consequences, or, or those who have known deep disruption and trouble at the hands of others, it is affirmed that the relationship with God and his people remain. They're not just people, but they are my people, says God. And I'm not just a God, but I am your God. 
This is the announcement that enters into the abyss and into the difficulty that people are experiencing. And not only that, but in this relationship, it is affirmed, it's spoken with a voice of tenderness. Do you notice how it's spoken? Acknowledge this tenderness and acknowledging the condition and the pain, yet offering comfort and care. Speak softly and tenderly to Jerusalem, but also make it very clear. Her sin is taken care of. Her sin is forgiven. Discord and conflict and wounds, that time is over. And here is the proclamation that God's faithfulness and his loyalty do not end at the point of our disobedience. That's what this announcement is saying to people who know the consequences of their failures. This announcement also makes clear that our future and our union with God does not end with terrible circumstances or painful mistreatment at the hands of others. And what we see right away, just in these brief few words, that this message is a gift. It is hope rooted in the loyalty and in the grace and the character and activity of our God. This opening announcement is proclaimed, given for us to hear. And the second movement, the second part I want us to see is that this hope is now there for us to internalize it. Here is not only an announcement, but it's a message for us to hear and to receive, to maybe picture to, to let it in, or to follow the, the poem I read in the beginning. This is the bird that, that needs to perch in my soul, to let it in. The first proclamation is joined with another unidentified voice that cries out, the Lord is coming, prepare the way for him. For those who were convinced that they had been left alone, that time had passed, there was no possibilities, they're reminded that God is coming to them. And the image therefore is that you should prepare, that you should think about how you're going to receive this one who comes. Make clear the path, make straight the highway. Level the high and the low terrain to make a passage, make the journey straight. This image is the image of the people preparing the way for the one who is coming to them. I recently came across an article by a German theologian, and she was writing about her experience of sorrow and she thought about her, the church in Germany, the, church, the German church that she was a part of, and how in sorrow she looked back at the ways that they were complicit with the Nazi party. And part of her writing as a theologian was to wonder how could it be that these church members, directly or indirectly, participated in this treatment, the killing of their Jewish neighbors. And so part of this theologian's work that she sought to ask the question, how does the church see, or how does the church respond to human suffering, to human pain? Why is it at times that the church sees it, and other times the church doesn't seem to care? One of the things that she pointed out is that something that gets in the way of us as Christians seeing others or seeing human suffering is what she calls theological assumptions. 
that we assume, whether we say it out loud or not, that we assume that we are right or that we are on God's side. It's ironic, right, given all that we talk about sin and human depravity, but there's something about religious people, right, that we assume that we're in the right spot or see things the right way. And interesting, also not only theological assumptions, she mentioned what she called technological assumptions that prevents people from seeing or actually looking at pain. And she used current examples saying, for example, if we only talk about a vaccine to stem a pandemic, or if we only talk about body cameras to prevent police brutality, we might not ask why such things are needed. Why these are good technologies, a vaccine and body cameras are things that hold accountability or save lives. If in the face of suffering, we only seek such solutions, we fail to ask about our susceptibility to a virus or our susceptibility to violence. If we only think about these solutions, we might fail to ask what the realities say about us or our society. The voice calls Israel to reflect on their exile. That God is coming, but part of God coming was for the people to think about their condition. To think about their powerlessness, to think about how they had forsaken God or forsaken their neighbors. And in the same way, this voice meets us wherever we are in our current circumstances, invites us not just to think about certain actions that we know to be right or certain things we want to do, but reflect on our actual struggles and who we are. Our discouragement or our fears in the face of things. Our worries or reaching after false gods and our sense of being out of control. Prepare the way of the Lord. As we hear the message, we are to consider what it would be to receive it to open ourselves up and to examine what's there, to see the high places or the places that are crooked. But even as we do so, as we seek to receive the message, there are questions that might stir within us. What about the other forces at work? Or can God actually change things or make things different for me? Or maybe we could say these voices, Isaiah, are beautiful and they're, they're moving, but how can God actually save us from the powers at work all around us? And so it's into that internal struggle as we try to receive it and as we try to internalize it, but we come into these questions that a voice cries again in the wilderness to anticipate these unspoken questions, telling the prophet to join in, cry. And Isaiah answers, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. You see, Isaiah is commissioned as he and you and me, as we feel the the questions, like what would it mean for us to receive this message as comfort from God? Isaiah is commissioned to cry out those powers that hurt you, that seek to tell you who you are, that tell you that the only way to have life is to follow these certain false hopes or false gods, that these powers are not the final word in your life. That they are not what will last. They are like grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. And it reminds us that as we seek for some type of hope, some type of possibility, 
that it cannot be in ourselves or in those around us or the powers that would promise us things, but it must come from God's word, which will last. This leads us to the third and final part of our sermon, the call to join, to participate. There's been a proclamation of comfort and announcement. There's a voice crying and a promise that the powers will fade. And now we're invited to receive and to join in, to lift up your voice and declare to all that God is coming as a tender king. Zion, God's people, go up on a high mountain, be a herald of good news. Shout and proclaim, Behold, your God is here. I enjoy watching nature documentaries. <laughs> and one I saw resonated with, seemed like our current circumstances in the world. The episode was about shellfish. Sounds very exciting, right? And it talked about how unlike animals that have soft bodies or skin that stretches, Shellfish such as a lobster, that once the shell is hard, it cannot grow any longer. So if this shellfish wants to grow, it has to shed its outer shell and take on a new one. And shellfish are the most vulnerable when they are between homes, or when they have shed one protective casing and are still growing the next one. They are tender and sometimes cautious and sometimes desperate. If we could picture that, the old casing, the old protective layer, no longer there, I need a new one. Then if you're like me, then maybe there's times that we feel like people who have a little less outer shell than we wish, or that we're in between such casings, vulnerable, like a lobster in molting season. <laughs> and we can think maybe in this time when we've been invited to experience being out of control, that the protective casings that we assumed would last and be sturdy have not been so in the way that we expected. And it's in such vulnerabilities that we hear and that we're invited to say to ourselves and to one another and to all who would hear, do not fear, for God is coming. Behold your God. It's significant, again, that God, the people of Zion, are not called to find hope rooted in their morality, rooted in their religious life, but rather hope in the identity of God's strength and his tenderness, rooted in God's faithfulness. It is a gift from outside that can come in and once it's inside of us, can perch inside of us and give us hope in the midst of our struggles. For the song that we're to sing, Behold, here is your God, it can be summarized as the gospel, the good news that God the King will come both with saving power and with tender care. Did you see the, the message that we're invited to sing? Do not fear, for God's arms will act, act with might to save his people. Act with might in the face of those things that would hold us or condemn us to free us. But also his arm would be one of tenderness to gather the little lambs, the little ones in his arms. We're invited to picture those who had gone into exile as scattered sheep, those who were lost and wandering, those who were exposed and at threat. 
But here is the God who seeks them out. And not desert or mountain or valley, no power or other voices, nothing in the wilderness, in the barrenness or the uneven land, none of these things will prevent God from finding those sheep that have been scattered and lost. Here is your God. It is as if Isaiah is saying to us and inviting us to say out loud, your God has not forgotten you. Your God has not forgotten you. And he comes with forgiveness in his arm and the promise of redemption. Like a shepherd, he gathers those little ones in his arms. He carries them in his bosom and gently leads those who are with young. We can picture the sheep who are wounded and weak. He will carry them on his chest. It's like what the theologian Nicholas Wolterstorff, as he, as he writes about what is it like when God's kingdom comes? What is it like when God's king comes with power and tenderness? He says it's like all the little ones, all the defenseless ones, all the unprotected ones being brought back into the community to enjoy the table and the goodness of the community, to be affirmed that they belong and are welcome as part of the family. A picture of peace and of hope is the shepherd going out and finding the sheep that have been lost and are wandering and exposed. So lift up your voice, behold your God. And therefore, it's not surprising as we gather here in the name of Christ that all of the Gospels, all four of them, introduce Jesus to us as the one who fulfills this announcement, this song of Isaiah. The Gospels tell us that John arrived as the voice in the wilderness announcing that Jesus was coming as the king who would save and come with tenderness. Think about it. Jesus as the powerful and tender king. Here is what your God looks like through miracles and healings, restoring people, casting out demons and evil, and facing our sin and conquering our death. Christ reveals the power of God to free us from that which holds us, to give us again the name of son and daughter of God. But not only does he act in power, Jesus is the tender king who loves the outcast, shows compassion for those who are like sheep without a shepherd. We can think of Jesus, right? The one who knelt in the dirt, who mixed it with saliva, who spread it on a blind man's face who touched a woman who hadn't stopped bleeding for over a decade, the one who raised the dead son of a widow, Jesus who was not afraid of dirt or stigma or sorrow. Behold, this is your God. We're invited to hear the announcement that does not rest in us. We're invited to receive it, to bring it inside of us, and we're invited to sing it to ourselves and to us, to one another, and to all who would hear this is the good news. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are and that you're God, you are God that is gracious and good, who does not leave us in our brokenness and our sin, who does not leave us in the mistreatment of others, but enters into such places to bring new life. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
sets for his people. I invite you to join in our responsive reading. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. participating in communion, but also those who are not participating but are just observing the table. I remind us that this bread and this cup are pictures, things that we can hold and see that speak of who God is. And if we think about what does it mean to find the comfort of God, to know the hope of God, then we can look at this broken bread in this cup. For our hope is in Christ, that by his broken body and shed blood, that we have a place with God now and forever. That by his broken body and shed blood, we no longer stand condemned before God or God's law, 
We no longer are bound by the powers of the world that would tell us what we have to do or who we are. But we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. That's the good news. And so in our despair, our discouragement, our worries, let us see this bread and cup and remind that the comfort and hope comes to us as a gift. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are, and we thank you for these elements, and we pray, Lord, that you would set them apart, and that by your Spirit, you would use them to minister to us. Lord, as we receive these elements, let them be strength for our faith. Lord, if we are here just watching, I pray that I pray a blessing of peace upon all those who are seeing this bread and cup, that it would be a pointer to who you are, a reminder, a spiritual encouragement, that you are the God who seeks out the lost the wandering sheep, to bring us home. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ's body was broken to make us whole. Let us eat in faith. And Christ's blood was shed to cover all of our sins. Let's drink in faith. Lord, we thank you for this table, this gift of a sacrament that you give to us that speaks hope and peace to us. We pray by your spirit that we would know this and that we'd share our voices, not just to ourselves, but to one another and to our neighbors, to speak of the hope of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand in response to the table, and you can, can join together in our responsive reading. Christ is the bread of life. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, Lord Jesus, until you come in glory. Amen. I receive God's blessing. May the love of God the Father, the grace of our Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. You may go in peace.